Maybe you're here this morning and you know your life has been deeply impacted by these wounds from the past. These things that have happened to you. You've been hurt and you hurt others. You're struggling maybe with depression, anxiety, purposelessness, despair. You fill in the blank. I'm inviting you to open the hood. But guess what? You're going to look in there and say, "Ah, I don't know why I do what I do. Why I am the way I am. You cannot figure that out. You need to invite God in. Forgive me, Lord, but I'm going to use this analogy. You're the great mechanic who can fix our lives. Abounding in Faith is the broadcast ministry of Emmanuel Bible Church of Howell, New Jersey. If you are blessed by this message, please subscribe to our podcast or YouTube channel. You can also download our app by searching for IBCNJ in the Google Play Store or the Apple Store. For more information, please visit us at www.ibcnj.org. Our speaker today is Senior Pastor Joe Suazo. Uh, Remain standing, and if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 37. And uh, just to remind you, we've been in a series on relationships uh, the last several weeks. And the first week, we looked at God's design as image bearers of God and what he's called us to be, to be loving vessels of the Father, and that through Christ, he can transform us that we may fulfill that original design. And we saw last week that we answered the question, why do we so miserably fail at this call to love? And we saw that uh, sin is the culprit. But Christ is our healer. Uh, By his wounds, we're healed. That's what we looked at last week. And then this week, we're going to answer this question. What do we do when others deeply wound us and hurt us? And what would seem to leave a forever wound in our hearts? What do we do with that? And I think we could, to answer that question... I don't think we can think of a better account of Scripture than the story of Joseph, who is deeply wounded and enslaved for many years. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 37, verse 1, and we're just going to read a portion of it, and then I'll, as we go along, I'll explain to you the rest of the story uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the, the life of Joseph, which I encourage you to read. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Silpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was a son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him 
more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told this dream to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we're, we're binding sheaves in a field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Going down to verse 12. Now his brothers went to pastor their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said, Joseph said, Here I am, father. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me a word about them. Now, down to verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him to one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of this, this dreamer. Father, as we look at this portion of Scripture and, and ourselves this morning, I would think, Lord, that your Spirit is the one who can only help us to see how we've been wounded and how we wound others and ultimately the forgiveness that we have in Christ is our only guide. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we kind of explore this narrative, and I'm going to give you a crash course on the life of Joseph, we're going to read in detail because it's five chapters of Genesis, which I encourage you on your own to read through. It's an amazing account of Scripture. The first truth I want us to discover is that all of us live in a fallen world, and whether we like it or not, we all become victims of sin. That means no one here gets a pass. All of the, us have been hurt in some way. Sometimes we've grown up in families that are deeply dysfunctional. Some of us have spouses or past marriages where there was abuse. There are some here that may have been sexually abused. And the list goes on of all the injustices that can come against us because we live in a fallen world. The second truth that we're going to learn today is because we're shaped by others' sins and are also sinners ourselves, unbeknownst to us, we then often perpetuate those sins and then hurt those around us. 
You've heard the old adage, hurt people, hurt people. And so, humbly, we have to look at ourselves and recognize that, that we ourselves don't get a pass on this, even when we're victims. And then finally, and of course this is the good news of the gospel, that despite our own sin and the sins of others, we have a great opportunity through a new life in Christ Jesus. We not only discover forgiveness, that we ourselves are forgiven, but then through the power of the Spirit in us, through Christ, we then can forgive those who trespass against us. And this is far deeper than mental assent. Because it's one thing to say I've forgiven. It's another thing to move on beyond the patterns of those sins that may have impacted my heart and have changed me into a person that might be more selfish or a person who's angry or bitter or a person with various other behaviors that come out of these deep wounds. So let's look at these truths together. We live in a fallen world. You know, when we turn to the life of Joseph, we see how his brothers hated him. It's mentioned several times in the text here. To the point that as the account unfolds, when the father sends Joseph to find out how they're doing, they see him from a distance and they conspire amongst themselves these ten other sons, because there's one other younger son than Joseph called Benjamin, ten of them passing in the field, see him from a distance and conspire to murder him. Now, I don't know about you, I personally have not experienced murder in my family. Close to it. Seriously. Close to it. But not murder. When, when things get this bad, we're talking about deep-rooted bitterness and anger. They see him at a distance, but in their conspiracy, Reuben, one of the brothers, raises up and says, listen, let's not murder the boy. Let's throw him into the pit. And then what we'll do is when a caravan passes by, we'll sell him into slavery. So a Midianite caravan passes through, they sell him into slavery, they take that multicolored coat that the father gave them, which was a source of their jealousy and bitterness, they soil it with the blood of an animal, and then they go back and lie to the father, and they said, your son has been killed by a wild animal. Meanwhile, Joseph saw his way to Egypt enslaved. But the abuse doesn't stop there. In the first place, he's serving as a slave under the home of what was a, a wealthy man called Potiphar. He, the wife of Potiphar continues to try to pursue him uh, with an adulterous affair. Uh, to Joseph's credit, he avoids her, avoids her, avoids her, and eventually she entraps him and lies to Potiphar, who ha then has no choice but to send him to prison. 
But the abuse doesn't even stop there in an Egyptian dungeon, rotting away for who knows how many years. Uh, there's two of the king's servants who are imprisoned, a cupbearer and a baker. They both have dreams, and Joseph says, I can interpret them by the hand of God. And the dreams that he interprets come to pass. The baker is killed, as Joseph predicted in the, from the dream. And the cupbearer is released. But upon his release, Joseph says, Remember me before, Sarah, before Pharaoh, that I may be released. But he doesn't. The cupbearer betrays him and, and forgets him. And so he's languishing in prison. Hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, and then many years rotting away as a prisoner. Now, chances are, you have not suffered to the degree that Joseph has suffered. However, and I've heard many of your stories, and I pray for you, some of you know my story, no doubt the sins of others have found a way to bring pain, turmoil, and trauma in your life. Some of us were children of alcoholics or an addiction. Others, an emotionally abusive father or perhaps mother, brother, sister, husband, wife, uncle. The list goes on and on, but there's no doubt there's someone who would seem to have left a forever wound in your life. There's a slide here I have called the Family Dysfunction Meter. All of us have grown up with some dysfunction. Now, maybe you were in the green, but that's not where my life was. I was hyper-red, surrounded by alcoholism, anger, and emotional abuse. Maybe that's your story. I don't know. But all I know is that those sins deeply shaped my soul and my way of thinking. We live in a sin-sick world, and despite our efforts of trying to avoid or escape it, we're tempted to carve out a life to minimize its impact. And yet, some of us here may be still struggling with the after-effects, almost like a form of PSTD. Is that the right acronym? PTSD. I knew I was going to... Well, I have it written. P I must be right. It's PSTD on my paper. In, in fact, I was sharing this a little bit with my wife, and she said, no, it's PTSD. Make sure you correct that. And I still left it on here. Job loss and the fear of, of just being decimated financially could be a trauma, a death of a spouse or a dear friend, consequence of living in a fallen world is all around us. Now, the Bible teaches that 
When sin entered the world, it brought this carnage, pain and trauma into our lives personally. Whether it's this dysfunctional family, broken marriage, wars. We know the stories of those who, who suffered the aftermath of great wars, conflict, that rage all around us. We see the effects of sin. Romans 5.12 states it this way, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Can't get past it. Well, this is the great temptation for all of us. Because we live in a fallen world, the great temptation is that we become angry and bitter by it. Shaped by it. And held as a prisoner to it. Which I think all of us in some measure do and have done. Now I would think that Joseph would have been deeply impacted by everything that happened to him. What do you think? All that injustice, all that hatred, betrayal that was inflicted upon him. But as we'll see in the text, in the narrative as it goes forward, he gives us a pattern of one who overcomes bitterness. And at the end of the account, we'll see, he forgives his brothers and shows us what it means to enter a new life. The question is, is how did his brothers get so calloused and mean? I mean, this is his little brother, you know? Give him a pass. Well, in some ways, they would have been influenced by their father, Jacob. Jacob not only created rivalry in his family, the text tells us that, by favoring Joseph more than the other brothers, but Jacob himself had a history even before his own family of deception, jealousies, and rivalries. In his family, his mother Rebekah favored him more than his brother Esau. And his father Isaac favored his brother Esau more than him. Jacob would betray his brother Esau to the extent that Esau wanted to murder him, so he runs for his life. He runs to his uncle Laban's hundreds of miles away, and while he's with uncle Laban, he continues the deception. He winds up with four wives and 12 sons, and he continues to connive. And jealousies are created amongst them all. You could say that in some ways that Joseph suffered by the hands of his brothers, who no doubt suffered in different ways by the hands of their father's lack of judgment and wisdom. And so the great temptation as we grow up in less than perfect homes and in a world that's imperfect is instead of us living victoriously past it we become shaped by it and instead of discovering freedom and joy beyond it 
we wind up becoming embittered and angry and take on all kinds of behaviors that make it difficult for us to fulfill the call that God has on us to learn to love others, especially within our own families. And so we live in a fallen world. But we just don't live in a fallen world. We ourselves are fallen. This makes it double trouble, so to speak. Double trouble. Going back to the Romans passage in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 23, it says, None are righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hurt people, hurt people. We're victims and we're criminals at the same time. This is the sad reality. Every human failure in families, in marriages, businesses, workplaces, and our nation is because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, the scripture says that the sins of our fathers is visited to the third and fourth generation. It's no surprise to me that my background growing up in a home of addiction, alcoholism, I had come out of it with my own struggles. My siblings came out of it with their own struggles. But looking further back, looking at my grandparents, I see how my parents wound up giving their life over to addiction. And I can't go further back than that because I didn't know my great-grandparents. But it was clear to me to see all that. And, and this is where each of us have to look at our own hearts and our own history and see how those things have impacted us personally. When we look at the life of Joseph and his family, we see patterns within that family that Joseph had to overcome with God's strength. Jacob clearly lacked wisdom when he display greater love for Joseph more than his brothers. Wouldn't you agree with that? Jacob's deception, his lack of wisdom in raising his children would ultimately lead him actually to depression. He was a depressed man. The text tells us that. After the brothers bring back the story about the passing of the son Joseph, we see in his heart that he refused to be comforted and said, no, I will go down to Sheol to my son's mourning. This is repeated several times in the text. He didn't invite God in. No, I refuse to be comforted. I do not accept this wound. God, you're not good. You allowed this in my life. Therefore, I decide that I am going to stay an angry, depressed person who's going to go right to the end, depressed. How's that for a vision in life? Some people are living that vision. Later on in the account, when a severe famine comes upon the land, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt for food. Now, remember, 
Jacob thinks Joseph is dead. His brothers think Joseph is enslaved in some faraway land. What they don't know is in fulfillment with the dream that Joseph had that God miraculously raised him to be second in command to Pharaoh to take care of the land during this great time of famine. And so during the second year of famine, the, the sons go back and they, they meet Joseph, but they don't know it's Joseph. But the, Joseph knows it's them. And when Joseph sees his brother, he loads him up with food, but he plans a ruse. As they're on their way out, he accuses them of being spies. He knew they weren't spies. He knew they were his brothers. He doesn't tell them. He keeps them in prison for three days of questioning. And what he finds out is his youngest full brother, Benjamin, was left behind with the father Jacob. So he says, listen, I'm going to keep one of you, and he keeps Simeon. And he says, next time you come back, I want you to bring Benjamin to prove that you're not lying. And he sends him away. Now I was thinking to myself, why did Joseph not simply reveal himself at this point? There's different interpretations. Some people think Joseph's beyond reproach. After all, he, he uh, got past Potiphar's wife's flirtations. Uh, many other places in the text we see a man who's certainly godly, and some say, well, no, he's trying to teach him a lesson. I, I don't buy it. I think he's struggling deeply. This is my take on it. Whether he should forgive him, whether he should take some kind of revenge on them, some, some kind of justice. So they go back. The famine worsens. And at this point, Jacob's forced because of this famine to send his sons back again. This time with Benjamin. This is where the account gets really interesting. When the brothers talk to the father about going back with Benjamin, listen to Jacob's bitterness and depression. Genesis chapter 42, verse 36. You have bereaved me of my children. He's talking to the brothers now. You have bereaved me of my children. Talk about a guilt trip. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Have you ever had a woe is me moment? Like three times a day? <laughs> woe is me. The world is against me. Things are just not lining up the way. I told the, the there was like four things broken in, when I woke up this morning. Seriously. And I was just getting angrier and starting to seethe. And I said, this is, I told Diane, my wife, I'm just ridiculous sometimes in my anger. You know, where does this come from? I was literally having this conversation. And there's no doubt I grew up in an angry household. And I, it comes back. And I told, told the worship team, if I didn't live in a physical world, everything would be just fine. <laughs> the problem is the world does not line up with my desires. And so when things don't go the way I want them to go, I get angry by it. 
or angry at myself. It's silliness, I know. But you see how the, the sins of our father shape us emotionally? They shape the way we think, the way we feel. So Jacob reveals his hopelessness. Verse 38, if harm should come to Benjamin, listen to what he says there, brother. On your journey, you'll bring my gray hair down to so- with sorrow to Sheol. They're probably all looking at each other. He's already a depressed fool. This is what the brothers are probably thinking. He's already depressed. How much sorrowful are you going to be? This is what a perspective without God leads us to, by the way. Depression and anxiety. I'm not saying they're not legitimate physiological things with depression and anxiety. I'm just saying that often you can trace them back to prior abuse and bad experience. And sometimes instead of turning to God, I say if my circumstances go, don't go the way I want them to go, I'm going to remain in sorrow. But the problem is, is when we don't turn to God and seek Him instead of trusting that He is a God who can work all things out for the good, my despair only sees the future bleak. And my emotions become colored by them. When I don't invite God into my pain instead of hope, I'll blame others or even God for my misfortunes. And so Jacob said to his sons, you, you'll bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. You see, unless we invite God into our lives to break the patterns of sin, instead of finding our joy and comfort in the Lord who loves me, I'll increasingly be absorbed with myself and shaped by my past pains and wounds. We live in a fallen world. We ourselves are fallen. Finally, we live with a great opportunity. Because if I stopped here, you'd say, man, what a sour puss on Father's Day. (laughs) I think I want to just crawl under the pew and go away. Isn't it good news that God doesn't allow things to stop there? He could. We live with a great opportunity, and that's the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Jesus told us in John 10 that he is the good shepherd. I love that about Jesus. He has different things he says about himself. You know, sheep aren't too smart, you know. I have limited experience with this, but I did have a friend who had some sheep, and they literally, without fence and care and water and food, would quickly perish. They need to be led, and uh, they need to be cared for. That's just the nature of sheep. He's the good shepherd. We're the sheep. He told us that he's the gate also of the sheep, the door of the sheep. If anyone goes through him, he'll have eternal life and find, listen to this, Green pasture. Don't you like that image? I love that image of fine. And then he says this. I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly or full. 
You see, when we turn from our sin and bitterness and trust Christ, an amazing thing happens. We're forgiven. And a new life with great opportunities ahead of us. Because Jesus died for my sin, I now, through him, can be born again and have a new journey. That's what it means. Born again is not a religion, my friends. It's not a subsect of Christianity. It's the scriptures from John chapter 3 where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless a person has that new life, that new perspective that comes through him alone, uh, we would perish. We need this new life in Christ through the Spirit of God. And because Jesus died for my sin, I now through him can be born again and begin this new journey. That in journey includes letting go of destructing, destructive patterns through the power of the Holy Spirit. I can now forgive those who hurt me and learn to trust that the injustices I experienced and perpetuate against others can now be resolved and broken. Think about the miracle of that. By his wounds, we're healed. He breaks the bonds that have captured us. Watchman Nee, a great Chinese theologian, called this the great exchange. The great exchange. I, I love what he says. He says, Jesus, who becomes my sin bearer, now opens the way for me to live a new transformed life that gives me the power to overcome bitterness, the hurts of my soul, and to begin loving others and experiencing joy and peace. How? You can't do it. Give me Jesus. That leaves me just one, one final thing. This is the challenge now to each of us. You have to look under the hood. Well, what does that mean, Pastor Joe? Well, bear with me. You know, a number of occasions, I've either done this myself or stopped and seen it happen to others. Our car breaks down the road. What is the first thing we often do? If you've had that experience, open the hood. Then you get out of the car and you look underneath the hood. But honestly, unless you have a background in mechanics, you don't even know what the heck you're looking at. Especially now, yeah. And so you look at it as though somehow some magical insight's going to come out that you're going to just somehow stick your fingers in there and massage the engine and bring it back to life. Yeah, you probably could. Maybe you're here this morning and you know your life has been deeply impacted by these wounds from the past. These things that have happened to you. You've been hurt and you hurt others. You're struggling maybe with depression, anxiety, purposelessness, despair. You fill in the blank. I'm inviting you to open the hood. But guess what? You're going to look in there and say, ah, I don't know why I do what I do. Why I am the way I am. 
You cannot figure that out. You need to invite God in. Forgive me, Lord, but I'm going to use this analogy. You're the great mechanic who can fix our lives. You're the one, Lord, who can take me by the hand, help me straighten out the mess that my heart could be in. The reason why I might be so angry or bitter or volatile or hurt others or whatever it is. Remember the dysfunction meter? Maybe you're redlining, I don't know. I know I can tend to redline, just ask my children. But you have to invite Christ in. When we finally do that, surrender to him, he begins the healing process, not all at once. I've been walking with the Lord 40 years, I know it's not all at once. but over time. And when God transforms us, he will, we will find the courage to forgive those who hurt us and ask for forgiveness for those we've hurt. When Joseph's brothers went back the second time, this is what we discovered. Joseph, who now is all-powerful, who struggled no doubt deeply with the injustice that was handed to him for almost 20 years or more. We find that he discovers the courage to forgive his brothers with God's help. I'm convinced he struggled to get there. How could he not? With God's help, he ultimately forgave and loved them despite being so deeply hurt. When the brothers stood before Joseph a second time, this time with the youngest brother, Benjamin, all 11 of them are standing before Joseph, sheaves bound down, just like the vision that God gave Joseph many years prior. Joseph comes up with another ruse. I'm not sure why, but I, I'm not sure. My interpretation is he, I don't think he's ready to forgive them. That's what I read in the text. Because in this ruse, he says, he sends them away with the food, but he deceptively plants a cup into Benjamin's sack on the horse that he was riding on. So he sends... Soldiers and servants after them, they find the cup, they all come back. And Joseph basically tells them, I'm going to keep him. He's the one who's guilty, Benjamin, and uh, you can all go. But Judah, and remember, Jesus was... Also, one of his names is called the Lion of Judah. It means that Judah, the son of Jacob, it was through his line that the Messiah came. And, and this time, Judah, as a type of Christ, steps forward and tells Joseph that 
Now, remember, the brothers don't know who Joseph is. Joseph knows who they are. He tells them, if, if you do that, you'll bring our father's head down to death with sorrow. And then jo Judah does an amazing thing. He shows forth an act of sacrifice and love and offers his own life for the life of Benjamin. Genesis 44, verse 33 says, Please let your servant, that's him, Judah, remain here instead of, of um, the boy as a slave to my Lord. And then in verse, chapter 45, verse 1, we read this. This point in the narrative. Joseph could no longer control himself before them. And he cried. And he wept out. And finally revealed himself to his brothers. I'm Joseph. But they could not answer him because they were so dismayed by his presence. Then we see Joseph forgive his brothers. I believe at that point, fully let go of all the bitterness in his heart. And we read in chapter 45, verses 5 through 15, these verses. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you've sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five more years. And God sent me before you to preserve you as a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And so it's not you who sent me here, but God. God, they intended it for evil, but God turned it out for the good. I don't know about you. I love that. I don't know what your story is fully. I do know some of you. That what seems to be a forever wound that you might have in your heart, that maybe you received with your family or by another person, that person may have meant it for the, the worse. But God can turn around for the good. How? When you invite him in. When you invite him in. You see, God is sovereign and is able to take every broken piece of our lives, every shard, and knit something together beautiful out of it. Song of Solomon's beauty out of ashes. I love that. Beauty out of ashes. So, some questions before you leave today, this Father's Day. Have you been hurt? 
were shaped by something past. Acknowledge it. That's all we can do. You can't control it, but you can acknowledge it. Look under the hood. Have you hurt others? Maybe they're no longer on this, in this world, but you can ask God for forgiveness and go to them and ask for forgiveness. Most of all, you need to invite Christ into it all to resolve the turmoil of your heart. And when you do that, freedom. Freedom within and freedom to really love others as God has called us to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of Scripture and the power of your word and Lord, how much we can learn from the life of Joseph. Lord, we need grace. And we thank you that you've already promised on many occasions through Christ there's grace upon grace. I love that, Lord. Grace upon grace. And so help us, Lord, to turn to you in our turmoil, our bitternesses, our anger, the wounds that we carry around with us and discover the freedom that's only found in Christ and Christ alone. For you said, Lord Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.